do I still have to redact it, even though you guys are on record? It's called TSFCI. I think I'm a little nicer in real life than I am on Twitter. It's not hard. Feminist like mileage accounts. Hello and welcome to Unredacted. I'm here today with my co-host, Philippe Brynus, and we have a very special guest because she's one of my very good friends and I'm super excited to have her. She was on Washington for Beautiful People by herself and we had a great episode. We actually tap danced on the show, so it was like a radio hour. And then we did another episode where my guest, our guest, also joined Sam Vinograd and we did a really fun episode talking about national security and you know our guest and I said my guest our guest because she's on CNN all the time she's their legal analyst and you always hear dunking on somebody who's saying something incredibly dumb and stupid and the other part of her day is she's the director of admissions and a senior lecturer at Yale Jackson Institute for Global Affairs and she went to Yale Law and then joined the FBI and if this bio sounds familiar it's because it's Asha Rangappa hey Asha Hey, Emily. Hey. How was that intro? Was it good? That was good. Did it feel pretty official? It did. Were you impressed with yourself? You sort of. Be. Yeah. Did I mention <laughs> I that? Know. I was, I was confused say- for a second because you said good friends with Sam Vinograd and then kept saying she. And I thought, when did Sam Vinograd join the FBI? You didn't know. There was she a misplaced modifier for the entire bio. Oh, for fuck's sakes. <laughs> Any other critique, Philippe? Nope. There'll be a lot of editing later. Oh, good. Um, I am so excited that you're joining us on this one, on this one, on this episode. We became, we bonded. We obviously met the good old fashioned way on Twitter, which is now how everybody meets each other. And we bonded over a mutual love of musical theater. Yes. And And dancing. And dancing. You did a lot of dancing gifts. Is it gifs or gifs? I I thought it was gifs. Gifs. And I literally was like, I need to know you and I needed to be your friend because I got you in my soul. And I felt like from then on, everything that you talked about, I felt we were on the very much the same page, whether it was musicals or whether it was what was going on in the world, whether it was the dumpster fire that is Trump or it was me just appreciating that you had great nicknames for people like Rudy Giuliani, who is? Ferdy G. Who else do you have nicknames for? Let's see. Devin Nunes yes. is Nooney Tunes. Oh, that's kind of genius. Yeah. Um, for a while, Rod Rosenstein with Snoop Dag. <laughs> I like that a lot. <laughs> okay. um, I'm trying to think. I have a bunch. Who would you have for Trump? Did you have one for him? You know, I haven't come up with the nickname for him. I've, you know, I've done Crazy Cakes. That's great. President Wah Wah. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. It, it really, I feel like you have to fit the nickname for the doofus sometimes. You for know? the moment? For the moment, yeah. What about the kids? Anything for... Uh, I, So Don Jr., Trader Tot. Trader Tot's beautiful. I think I lifted that from somebody on Twitter. Well, I wish I could give them credit. I did on Twitter. I gave them a hat tip, but, uh, but Trader Tot was key. It's lovely. Yeah. They could all be Trader Tots. Can, Can we you... name Eric, Eric Trump's spittoon now? Absolutely. <laughs> Do you know what delighted me when I found out that somebody spit on him? Really? I oh. see. That that bothers me. Why? 
you can't see it listening, but Asha has her fingers crossed. That she says I do this. not. I, I just, <laughs> well, number one, that's gross. And number two, I feel like, you know, we shouldn't, I, I don't know. It's like, it, it, let's, like, come on. You don't spit on people. Like, that's what I teach my children. Have some don't, class. Don't, throw, have some throw a class. milkshake. <laughs> like they do. In- um, yeah, I don't know. I was, it was funny. After it happened, I was looking, obviously, on social media. And someone's like, oh, my God, he almost, he almost, like, had to, had spit in his mouth. I'm like, you're the same people who couldn't give a shit about Flint, Michigan. But you're going to worry about Eric having a little bit of spittle in his mouth. I don't know. It didn't bother me. But it's just because I find them all to be horrible humans, so. Yeah. But I get what you're saying. Like, there could be a level of decorum that doesn't involve hawking yeah. a loogie at you somebody. Know, be the change, people. Do you really think that that's possible now? Yes. You do? I do. You think if we lead by example, it will actually... It's not just leading by example, but, you know, when you look at... Particularly when you have so much cruelty and, and you know, injustice happening. I mean... When I, for example, when I watched the movie Gandhi, you know, when he marched to the sea with all of the Indians, it was doing it in a way that exposed the cruelty and the tyranny of the British, right? And that is, I think, can be more powerful than, you know, fighting against them or or stooping to their level. I, I don't know what form that would take right now, but I do think that there could be a creative way to... Not just take the moral high ground as an example, but to actually, you know, basically do a psyop where you force these people to to expose themselves, you know? But don't you feel like they're already sort of exposed and it just doesn't matter? Like, part of me thinks that we're looking at these, we're looking at the photos, you know, we see it. That There's no secret what's going on right now. Trump is very open. His administration is very open with what, about their hate, about their bigotry, about the racism and the anti-Semitism and the LGBTQ abuse. But nobody, like we care, obviously. But I don't, what, that's to me, maybe I'm just incredibly jaded. I just feel like it's not a secret. We all see it. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, when I see these things, I'm just imagining all of the commercials that could have I mean you know we're in this Twitter world where but we have to realize like most people are not on Twitter you know and they're (laughs) it's like our entire world we get sucked into the vortex but I I do think there is a broader American populace that is either checked out or um, there's just so much happening that they're not fully engaged in in what's happening I think that 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 is the piece that needs to shift, you know, because we think that everything that's tweeted and then people, somebody else tweets something and there's videos and things on online. Um, it has to get broader than that. What do you think, Philippe? Do you think that there's a change, like we can actually be the change or do you think it needs something bigger and better? And I'm, I'm just incredibly jaded. I'm big on the, um, I don't want to hear we're better than that routine until we have a chance to show that we're better than that. Otherwise, we're just saps. Um, what do you mean? Like, do you just think it's empty rhetoric that people are saying, well, we're better than that? It's naive. Do your kids ever, are they ever worried? Do they ever, what do they think about all this? Because obviously, they're of an age where they're. it's on TV, it's online. Do they have questions or is this just shocking to them because I can't imagine what it's like I talked to my nieces and nephew about it 
my nephew actually couldn't give two shits, but my niece is about it. And they're worried. They're scared. It's everything from what's going on in the schools with, you know, having to have gun drills and all of this and then seeing the pictures. It's deeply affecting for them. Yeah, I actually we don't watch a lot of news in my house. I mean, hardly ever. You know, I'll I'll watch it if something breaks and it's something that I need to get up to speed on. Um, but we don't have the news on. And so they they are not seeing necessarily the day to day. They know that I talk a lot about the Mueller report. <laughs> <laughs> and my daughter's joke was, why does everybody care about a report written by a tooth? And this was her big joke. It's know. a good joke. It's a good joke. It's pretty solid. You know, the Mueller report. So um, we do listen to a lot of podcasts, though. So, and I, I will ask them for their takeaways. And, you know, their takeaways are Trump is not that rich. It's <laughs> a good takeaway. Um, you know, Russia is trying to um, hurt America and and try to ruin our elections. So they're, you know, they, they get the big, big takeaways. Picture. They get the big picture. I actually think, I mean, this is, it, weirdly, they're, they're coming of age where this is what, the situation is it's like when we were growing up and it was you know iran contra you know the, yeah. i don't know that they don't have a point of reference yeah. of what it was before similar to post 9 11 like pe- kids who grew up then like they didn't know of a world before 9 11 what, what is really interesting is that my kids my daughter is 10 um she asked me about what ha- she said what happened with 9 11 why was that bad like it they that's now far enough away that it's not part of their part of their kind of daily understanding i think some of the stuff that's happening trump is you know so interesting um so yeah i i don't know you know i think it's on the one hand good that they are they kind of know what's going on on the other hand it's sad that their understanding of politics and american democracy is that you know there's a foreign country that's trying to um you know sabotage I would, I would think it. it's just interesting to me that the idea, and of course, they're too young. They don't know 9-11. They just hear about it as a sort of ethereal thing. Like maybe we heard about JFK or these other big or events. Watergate. Or Watergate. Or, yeah, exactly. So the idea, it's no, bizarre. it's interesting. My daughter did say, because um, we were listening to some podcasts and it was mentioning that Trump's you know 2016 slogan was Make America Great Again. And my daughter says... Isn't that as insulting to America to say mm-hmm. make that he's going to make America great again? I said, pretty much. Yeah, kind of is. So, yeah. you know, it's interesting how they're just taking things really at face value and and evaluating them with, you know, out a lot of um, story around it. What I think would be interesting, because I think about it, you're talking about your kids and, you know, my nieces. And I think about how interesting it'll be when things have changed that they'll have now this be able to compare the two. And also to see, hopefully, our government working. Because I think when we grew up, there would be checks and balances, but it was never something on this magnitude where you're thinking our government can literally fall into a sinkhole and we're really testing the bounds of our democracy. Mm-hmm. And I think it'll. it's hopefully, you know, my thought is that it'll either encourage activism and encourage, you know, real interaction with, you know, our government and people would be more interested in that. Yeah. And I, I wonder, I mean, we're, 
we say that, Emily, because you and I grew up in the Cold War. We're 80s yeah. kids, right? And there was a sense of you, like us against them and you know the Soviet Union. But I wonder if the people who came of age during Watergate actually felt the same way that people do now, like we're sinking into a sinkhole. Or if you look at, you know, the turn of the 20th century when all the power was concentrated in these, you know, few powerful men who, you know, had these monopolies on all these industries. Like, do people feel that same way then? So I sometimes I'm like, maybe there's hope that this is just a pen. You know, we go through these cycles and something will get us out. It's a hell of a pendulum shift. I know. I mean, truly, because I always wonder. I was like, oh, there'll be another election. I'm like, I don't think that's going to move the... I mean, it'll move it, but I don't know how long it'll take to come back to sort of right the ship. When even before this all happened, we still had a lot of work to do. Yeah. So to play catch up with that. I was interested, you were talking about... They were talking, obviously, AOC got and got a little bit of criticism when she was talking about the concentration camps and comparing what we're doing with refugees and asylum seekers and putting them in cages and comparing it to concentration camps and obviously the right one, you know, apeshit. But you were talking about how the FBI visiting the Holocaust Museum was part of your training. And mm-hmm. I thought that was fascinating. I had no idea that that was part of it. When did that happen? And how was that <clears throat> shared with students that this is something that you're going to have to do? Or this is something it's part of your training? Yeah. So I went into the FBI uh, in 2002 um, Muller had been the director for a year. And my understanding was that my class was one of the first new agent classes to go uh, to the Holocaust Museum as a part of the 17-week training at Quantico. Um, so I always thought that it was Muller who put that in. Um, but uh, another agent who you know had been in before me said that it was actually Louis Free who started it as a program for the higher management um, because he started, he wanted to put in an ethics training as a component of it, and then added this, and then I think it was extended to agents afterwards. Um, so yeah, uh, you know, I mean, it was just matter of fact; it was something that we were going to do. Um, Quantico is obviously near Washington D.C., so we got on a bus one day, and I think that it was. Um, I don't know if the museum is normally closed on Mondays or something, but it, it seemed like my recollection is that we were the only ones there. And then afterwards, there was actually a discussion um, that was facilitated by some people at the museum um, to you know, talk about what, what we had seen. Um, and it's actually really interesting because I remember during that discussion, one of the facilitators said something, and I think they were trying to convey a point without... Um, you know, accusing the FBI and they were like, you know, it, you know, it's, we're not saying that anything like that, this could happen here. And so I raised my hand and I said, well, you know, similar things have happened here. We had the Japanese internment camps and those were led by the military and it was actually sanctioned by the Supreme Court and Korematsu versus United States is at that, at that time is, is technically still, good law. I mean, it hadn't been overturned. So we are still technically in a in a legal framework where it, it could happen. And I think it's important to understand that. And, and you know, they were very nice about it. Afterwards, I kind of got chastised. I was gonna say, did you get in so much? You I got in so, much, so much trouble. Yeah. What did they say to you? Because literally, you're just speaking fact. You're- I was just speaking fact. But you know how these tra- you know how yeah. it is it, it, it. So it was like, you know, was like, 
like I don't know, I remember what the objection was, but it's like I, I was being too outspoken, you know, as opposed to simply passively. Ex- but I, I thought it was an important point to make. And in, in fact, Korematsu was only rejected in the travel ban decision. And it was it was rejected in dicta, which means it wasn't part of the holding of the case. But when the Supreme Court decided the travel ban case, you know, um, I think the the majority opinion basically said, you know, Korematsu is is dead, you know. Would you explain Korematsu? Korematsu versus United States was a case that challenged the Japanese internment camps as an unconstitutional classification based on race. And that as a result, that the government could not um, basically round up people based on their nationality. Um, And so uh, what the government argued was that it was based on military necessity, that it was, you know, that there was basically a national security reason, a, a military necessity to be able to do this. And, you know, uh, legal jurisprudence tends to defer a lot when it, when so military necessity is kind of like the go to place for the executive branch when they want to do stuff. Right. So it's kind of their trump. Card. Yeah. So it's a trump card. So, uh, w, when he did his post 9-11 stuff, it was always military necessity, military tribunals, military necessity. And so um, the, the Supreme Court upheld the internment camps and. You know, and there's a scathing dissent, um, which says, you know, this is we don't put the Constitution aside just because, you know, there is a claim of military necessity. So it's a very shameful part of our history, both historically and politically, but also legally. Um, And it it stayed there. I mean, no person in their right mind would actually cite that case in any modern, you know, to support (laughs) something, though. I think the Trump administration might have in their brief. I'm not sure. Wouldn't be surprised. um, For the travel ban. But uh, in any case, the Roberts court basically said, let's just make it clear that this is not um, this. This is not where we're. This isn't who we are. This isn't who we are. Yeah. It's my a good friend of mine's grandparents. Their whole family was put in an internment camp. And then they got out because a church came in and I don't know what happened, but they said that we'll take this family in. So basically took them out of the internment camp and promised to to speak for them. And they would have to go and report on them every week to say that make sure that they were, you know, living, you know, good American lives. And then she was hired to be a Tokyo Rose. And so she the army hired her and she would tape messages that they would play for the Japanese saying you're shaming your country. And that was one of the reasons that she also got out because she did that, which I think is wow. And it's really bizarre. And they were telling me horse horrible stories about they can't, but anyway, but you know, to go back to the original point of the visit to the museum, it was the intention was to, I think, convey to people who are taking on immense power and authority and responsibility, um, you know, especially at the federal level, uh, and to understand, you know, the the potential ramifications of that when that goes off the rails um, and when you don't have a, a very clear moral compass. It's interesting because I think that now I think we're people are almost desperate to look for new ways to convey these types, this type of truth and to to show people what's going on. And we were both interested in what Law Works Action was doing in terms of really sharing the Mueller report and saying, this is what it is. And I thought it was really interesting. I don't know. Did you watch the whole thing? 
Um, I didn't watch the whole thing. I was I, I watched good big chunks yeah, of it. It's long. It was it was only what what was it seventy minutes or something like that. It seemed longer, but maybe I was actually surprised that they were able to condense it that much. Um, but they did. They p- picked the the good parts. Um, I thought that they did a fabulous okay. job. And it's basically it was a group of like twenty actors or so, well known actors from John Lithgow, Alyssa Milano, of course, and I forgot who else was on there. But it was a big who's who who basically just read the Mueller report, but put feeling, like did it with feeling. Basically, it was the We Are the World for 2019. It Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It, it was. was. It was We Are the World. It was kind of amazing. Did you, John Lithgow was great. I felt like he was auditioning. Yeah. He was, people were laughing. It was, he sounded too competent to be Trump though. Yeah. I know. Too like, authoritative, too competent, too articulate. But yes, he did convey the overall Despair. Despair. (laughs) (laughs) I loved the fact that hearing the words and hearing Trump's quotes, people were laughing because it was, there was such. So absurd. The absurdity of it became very real and palpable. And I think there's something about reading a Trump tweet that's insane and idiotic than hearing it voiced in that way. And I thought, as someone who appreciates theater, as you and I do, I thought that was such a, a really unique way of showcasing that. I'm curious if other people outside of our sort of theatrical orbit actually watched and actually took it in. Sometimes I feel like maybe they're just preaching to us and we're like, yeah, we know. Well, I don't think anyone who wasn't already convinced that this was an important report watched it. I doubt it. But I do think that it was important for bringing this really important you know, political document, this uh, call for civic action of some kind into an artistic space. Yeah. Because we don't have many spaces left where there is a way for a lot of different kinds of people to engage in um, in receiving the same kind of information and at a very visceral level. Like we used to have three TV stations and, you know, or one, you know, major newscast and that that kind of served this function and we don't have that anymore. So with the fragmentation of the news, with Twitter, social media, these bubbles, you know, I do think that we need to find other spaces where people can come together, whether whether they're artistic, like sports events, where we join together and say, we're going to use the space to have a civic conversation um, about things that are that about our shared values that unite us, you know? And I think that that's what it was trying to do. And I think we see it to your point in sports as well. It's interesting how it's, it's had to go to these places where, where people feel an, an immense connection, whether it's sports and taking a knee and really explaining what that means and the symbolism of that to now using theater, because it's, it's the last recourse that I think a lot of us feel that we have to use in order to connect and to have that message for you, and then I'm going to turn over to Philippe in a little bit. Um, for you, looking at the election and looking ahead, are there candidates that you feel could really right the ship, that you're excited about, that you look at and you're like, okay, they're instilling some hope and some, they're making me feel like we have a shot? You know, I'm not a political analyst. And I probably have some unpopular views on, you know, candidates. I mean, I personally, and again, then this has nothing to do with their viability or electability. I leave that to, you know, the people who who do that kind of work. Um, I really like Pete Buttigieg. Did I say his name correctly? Just call him Mayor Pete. 
Mayor Pete. I like Mayor Pete. And I like him because I think he embodies what we used to think of as qualities of a statesman. He's incredibly well educated. He is, I mean, he literally can communicate in like six different languages, including sign language. While solving a Rubik's Cube. Right. And curing something. Um, you know, they in in the ways that he's communicated, I feel that he has done it where he's able to um, state his point while not being unnecessarily divisive um, and kind of invoking some of these shared values that we have. Um I think that he's I've also, I've been struck that he's empathetic and compassionate. Like he has some of these higher order emotions that seem to come through in his in who he is. I think that's really important right now. Um, and, you know, it's not that these other candidates don't have it. I just don't I'm not I don't get that energy in the same way. And I worry that some of them in particular may you know, polarize our electorate even more, you know, that they might be even too extreme. We don't want to go from one pendulum swing all the way to the other. And, you know, when I when I hear things like everybody gets free college and a free pony, like that irritates me. So um, I'm, I don't buy into that kind of stuff. So I like more of the center. I'm, I, I think we need a statesman or stateswoman um, who goes back to what we think of as people who are representing America, you know? I also like how he's spoken about the Russian threat. And I, because I also yes. look at a lot of the candidates and what they're talking about that. And are they prepared? Are they equipped to do it? Do they understand the depths that this, that the Russians have gone to in order to really impact our country and our democracy? And I felt like he's been very, very, full-throated when he discusses it which to me is very exciting one last question and it leads into it segues nicely into Philippe's we've talked about it before have you been surprised by some of the mis- misconceptions people have had about the FBI that you've seen and especially now because of Trump and because of some of you know obviously it's become a punching bag for him and there's so many there's you know, he just throws shit at the FBI and the DOJ and CIA. Have you been surprised? And what are some of the ones that you have felt like I need to, I need to clarify? Because I feel like you do that really well on Twitter. Yeah. When people say something, you're well, like, and another thing. What's been surprising? Again, this is just sort of how things turn upside down in the Trump administration is that you have the right attacking the FBI. And now like the left is like, we love the FBI. And it's like, what are you talking about? Like you guys, you know, I mean, most of the criticism traditionally and historically has come from the left that, you know, um, against and and because of many of the things that the FBI did and some of it was in its checkered past, you know, they used to arrest draft dodgers and Vietnam protesters and all this kind of stuff. So there was a a clear, um, you know, kind of conflict um, with that end of the political spectrum. And now they're like the biggest champions of the <laughs> FBI. And it's just weird. Um, you know, I I have not found, though, that apart from people who really want to take um, the, you know, the Russia investigation specifically and politicize it, I, I think it's really hard. I mean, the FBI is a very large organization and it does so much. I mean, they're, they're investigating human trafficking and art theft and, you know, organized crime. I mean, they're doing so many things that it, you have to be, I think, 
really stupid or really disingenuous to project your feelings about whatever you think about what happened in this one investigation onto the entire organization. That explains so. Trump. Really stupid and really disingenuous. Yeah. But, you know, one of the things that really got me in, not in trouble, but like people didn't like is when I pointed out that a lot of the narratives that the right is taking on about the FBI were ones that were started by the progressive left. You know, like the things about FISA abuse and the FBI spying on you. It's like, guess what? That's what the left has been saying for 20 years. And now it's just been co-opted. This is a narrative that's been there. And whether it's coming from the right or the left, it's equally destructive because at a fundamental level, it ignores this idea that we have processes in place and that whatever you that that are there to check abuses of power, right? Um, especially in something like the FISA process, where you have like a judge who is there to review evidence. Um, and both of those, you know, whether it's coming from the right or left, that narrative says it doesn't matter. Nobody can be trusted. Everybody's a bad faith actor in the government. And if you are if you are starting with that premise, then there's really no no system, no check, no um, structure that you can put in place that's going to uphold the rule of law. And just so everybody knows, a FISA, if you want to just... <clears throat> right. A foreign, uh, FISA is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Um, and it was a law that was passed in 1978 um, as a way to create a structure and judicial check on uh, the executive's ability to conduct electronic surveillance for foreign intelligence gathering purposes. And if someone was going to do that and it was... An- Explain in terms of Americans, because I think there is this misconception that the FBI goes and spies on Americans all the time. And in order to do that, if there was some type of foreign threat, you go to the FISA court. That's right. So the FBI has to uh, gather information based on its evidence to date um, and show the court that it believes that the target is an agent of a foreign power. And for U.S. persons... Um, for American citizens and permanent residents, it has an even higher threshold. It has to show that they are knowingly engaging in clandestine uh, intelligence activity on behalf of this foreign power, which is a hard standard to meet. And it's not something that it's it's a very difficult process. Every 90 days it has to get renewed. So it's not something everyone's like, oh, they can do this all the time. It's not. It's a rigorous, rigorous system that goes in special uh, a special court that that's all they hear about. And you have to truly prove your with, you know, almost beyond a reasonable doubt that this is why this collection is so needed to our national security. Right. So it's a probable cause standard, but it is, um, you know, yeah. the, a judge is sitting there looking at it and looking at it skeptically. And I will say, having been on this from the inside, I mean, you know, they there's dead, you know, we need to go back into the court. Like, we're not going to miss this deadline. We need to make sure that it's airtight because it's, you know, the FBI does not want anything going in front of a judge that is anything less than something that's going to be approved because it's embarrassing and it creates, you know, they don't want to be thought of as, as bringing thin applications or doing things or trying to end run, you know, civil rights and stuff. It derides the trust, I think, that the FBI has if every time they're, oh, here's another one. Let's get another. Yeah, here's a, you know, it's not a drive through. Yeah. I did it in crayon. (laughs) Exactly. Speaking of misconceptions. I thought you were going to say speaking of crayons. Speaking of crayons. As someone who spends a lot of time trying to think of nasty things to call Republicans, I am upset that it never occurred to me to do what you just did, which is to call them no better than the progressive left, which is about the nastiest thing you could possibly say to them. 
uh, which is fantastic. We've had <laughs> we've had a number of guests, people that you know personally, um, like Josh Campbell, former FBI, Evan McMullen, former CIA. Obviously, Emily is former CIA. Your former FBI. I we 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 condense that bio down when it in of itself is its own show. It's just it's remarkable that you've all spent so much time, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about. Why did you decide to go into the FBI? And equally as important, why did you decide to leave the FBI? Yeah. So um, I actually applied to the FBI when I was in law school. Um, I wanted to be a federal prosecutor. And I learned in law school that one does not walk out of even Yale Law School and, you know, go into the Southern District of New York as an AUSA. Um, Typically, you work for a law firm for several years. And I didn't want to do that. Uh, Money was never something that motivated me and you know I wanted to do things that were fun and cool um so I applied to the FBI thinking that it would be really cool to kick down doors for a few years and then you know I apply to be a prosecutor this made total sense to me um but the FBI was not hiring at the time this was in 1999 so I put in my application I went through a few of the early phases of testing including language testing and then I graduated I went on to my clerkship in San Juan Puerto Rico um, where I was clerking for a judge. And then at the, at the end of my clerkship, 9-11 happened. And um, all of a sudden, Congress gave the FBI money to hire thousands of agents. And so I was in their system as a foreign language speaker, which they suddenly realized after 9-11 could be helpful. Uh, and so I got expedited through their process. And that's how I went in. And I ended up doing counterintelligence investigations, which is not kicking down doors. Like these are diplomats at consulates in the United Nations like you're not going to have a shootout with these people but um, would you talk about how that's not the normal path for someone just graduating out of Quantico you don't do you don't go straight into counterintelligence you're usually knocking on doors doing background checks and which I right. think speaks to your skill yeah so you know normally and, and definitely in New York new agents typically come in and spend at least a year doing rotations through you know they do background checks and then they do surveillance um, but uh, basically, the the particular language skills that I had were critically needed in a program um, in the counterintelligence side. And so uh, the di- first day I reported, the SAC wanted to see me, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm in trouble already. <laughs> he heard about what I said at the Holocaust Museum. <laughs> yeah, he did, exactly. And so I go in, and basically, he's like, I'm putting you directly on the squad on, on this case, and, you know, drop me off you know, in the middle of this counterintelligence squad. And so I just kind of dropped in and started doing that. Um, And it was interesting because, you know, that was not the side that most people knew of the Bureau. People think people thought of the Bureau as law enforcement and they're, you know, doing those things that I said before, you know, human trafficking, organized crime. Uh, People didn't really understand that it had a counterintelligence mission. And I was actually at the time concerned because I was like, how is this going to be relevant to anything I do for the rest of my life. Little like, did you who know. Who is going to care about FISA or, you know, foreign spies? Like, nobody cares about this stuff. And so, you know, that, and of course, that has really informed a lot of my understanding of, of what's going on now. In terms of why I left, I mean, I ended up marrying another agent um, and who also did counterintelligence work. And, you know, it was Mr. and Miss. Mrs. Smith, the situation, I guess. It's not an easy uh, schedule. And I think it's the, kind of some of the same um, challenges that, that face women, uh, particularly, I think, in male-dominated 
fields where you come to choices of, of you know, family, lifestyle, those kinds of things of, of what you're going to do. And, um, you know, my transition to academia was the best choice for me uh, to be able to accommodate some of those decisions. So, which I've loved. Um, and it has allowed me to expand in a lot of areas, but I do miss the work from the FBI. And I'm glad that I can still stay involved in the sense that I can help people get a little bit of a window into it because of course these agents who are still there cannot speak about it. And, um, and I think it's important that there be a voice that kind of tells the truth about what they do and and how it happens. And I think there's very few people like you who talk about the FBI, but from a counterintelligence perspective, yeah, because they don't have that experience. And because that's unique to you, I think that's what bring you bring a lot of value to that. Yeah. And you know, I think that that it also, is important for another aspect. I mean, you know, the counterintelligence portion of the FBI is not a huge portion, right? Um, I mean, I don't actually know the statistics, but if I had to guess, I would say maybe 15% of the agents in the FBI do counterintelligence work because it's it's primarily focused in major cities where there is a large government uh, pre- foreign government presence. So that would be New York, Washington, D.C., and San Francisco. Um so if there's 1,400 agents, it's like roughly 2,000 agents maybe out of all of them who are working counterintelligence cases against all targets, against all countries who have their spies here. And we have to remember that countries like Russia, we are their number one target. They spend all day thinking of how to bring us down. Um, you know, so we're almost mismatched. And I think, I think Emily, you can probably speak yeah. to some of this too. It's just, we're, we're, you know, I keep thinking of the words from Hamilton. We're outgunned. Oh man. You know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a challenge. And so I think that when people say, how did the FBI miss this um, in, you know, the same way they talked about nine 11, but there's a lot of that going on with 2016. Like why didn't the FBI do something? I mean, in some ways, we are stretched thin and the focus post 9-11 had been counterterrorism, 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 stop, you know, the, the biggest thing was to stop any terrorist activity. And I had five applications that actually sat on the back burner because the priority was given to uh, terrorism um, all, the, all money. the time, all, all the, the money. M- yes, all exactly. the resources were shifted to that. And also, you're right. It's like drinking from a fire hose, I would think, especially for the FBI, because you're one every foreign government is in the U.S. and they're spies. Just like when we go to, CIA goes to a foreign, we go to Spain or we go to Russia, wherever, we're the spies there. And then it's the tables have turned now. But so the FBI is now working China. They're working Russia. They're working every Iran. single country. Exactly. Because it's a gentleman's game. Everybody knows each other spying. They're all spying on us on our soil. We're doing the same there. But now we have the FBI trying to counteract all of that and trying to monitor all of that. It's... It's an impossible feat, especially if you don't have the resources, you don't have the money, and you don't have support. I think I'm sure tides have changed now with everything that's going on, and hopefully they're shifting that focus. They yeah. have to be. No, and it's not, and it's also not just hostile countries, right? Like yeah. all countries spy I, against each other. We all so do. people don't understand that either. Um, and the other, you know, when I was in the bureau, like I had to, I had to like book surveillance for certain days on certain tar- because there just weren't they couldn't do it on everybody so you know you had to you're even competing with other you know counterintelligence agents on when will i be able to monitor my targets and That's so crazy. C- countries like russia are gonna but it's crazy you have to book it. it's like you're booking <laughs> i like to book some surveillance i mean that's that's insane that we don't have the resources yeah 
So um, I have the highest regard for Bob Mueller. I think most of us do. But do you think he was somewhat naive in being upset after the fact and how the attorney general used his report? It seems like for two years of his work, he was so savvy in making it sort of fireproof, making it um, legal proof, making it sort of be able to stand on its own no matter who tried to do something. And then he handed it to his friend who basically undermined him and mischaracterized it. And it seems by all public reporting that Mueller was not happy with it to the point where he actually sent a letter to the attorney general saying this is a misrepresentation of my work. Yeah. It was a little surprising. I, I don't I don't know how you felt about it. Well, I think we forget that when Barr was nominated, I think even some of the you know, biggest skeptics of people who comment on this stuff were willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. You know, there because he had been AG before and because there is such a strong culture there of nonpartisanship and um, adherence to the law. I mean, the law is the law, right? And, and facts are facts. And so, you know, I remember Ben Wittes or even, I don't want to give, I'd say names, but I mean, some of the people who I think are uh, Mueller commentators were like, look, I, he, he may come in and really be, you know, on the up and up. So I don't know that Bob Mueller was naive. I mean, I think that Barr just went off the rails in a way, in just a stupid way. Like he said stuff that you, all you do is read the report and it's like, you can see that he's lying. Um, And so who would have foreseen that? I don't know. I mean, maybe no, now. I, I count myself as part of the crowd that was naive about Barr when he was picked because it's all relative to whatever previous numbnut uh, and I'm blanking on on the acting attorney general. So you always Wh- thank, thank God. It, oh yes, yeah. Matt. Whitaker. You know, thank God it's it's Bill Barr, and not uh, right. Whitaker. But um, it it just seems to some extent, if I were if I were Bob Mueller, I'd be like, oh my God, I just spent two years of my life <laughs> being attacked daily, and I'll probably be attacked the rest of my life. And then Barr just threw it up in the air. And the other part of it that I think. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of Ron Klain's, who I've worked with, and I'm not sure if you've had any experience with him. But he's made the point of what was the point of this exercise if it was impossible to come to the conclusion that a sitting president should be indicted? It, it seemed to be a fait accompli from the first day that this would be nothing more than a list. Now, in a in a good world, in a just world, that list would be a roadmap for a responsible Congress to do what they should do, what they are duty-bound to do. But that's not the world we live in. So what what exactly was ever going to come from this if we started from the point that the Department of Justice precludes the President of the United States from being indicted? Okay, so there's – I. There's a few different answers to that question. Number one, I think the piece that gets lost is this was originally about Russia and what Russia was doing to interfere in the election. And following that thread led to people in the campaign. So, I mean, it was never about getting the president. And I think that that has actually been something that we bought into, like we've allowed that narrative to 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 flourish. And that wasn't. He wasn't actually a target of the investigation to begin with. Um, 
until he fired the director of the FBI. Like, he created the investigation against himself, okay? He wasn't a part of it, and then that also opened the counterintelligence investigation. So for the early part of it, he wasn't even the target. Um, to the extent that he made himself a target by firing the FBI director and then continuing to obstruct justice um, and act sketchy with Putin. Oh, by the way, my nickname for Putin is Pooty. Oh, I like that. Yeah, and whenever they meet without anybody there, I call it a Pooty call. Aww. Yeah. So hashtag um, hashtag booty call. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that the piece of where Mueller says that, you know, we're going to follow the OLC opinion of the Department of Justice that a sitting president can't be indicted always omits the second part of that, which he explains. And I wish I'd brought my dog eared tabbed, you know, Mueller report, which I have back in my hotel room here, because he's he basically answers the question. So why did we do this? And he says, because the only thing right now that is protecting the president is is his position. And so it does not preclude future prosecution once he leaves office. Also, there may be other remedies, including impeachment. And the reason that we have now we have continued to collect this evidence is to get the evidence and testimony while memories are fresh. So it can be gathered clearly with the idea that either Congress can then pick up the baton while the president is still in office and or future prosecutors can then pick up the charges once he leaves. Those are not mutually exclusive, but I do think that they're important to uh, take into account because it does mean that the president has exposure if he does not get elected to another term and he has an existential reason right now to need to win. Part of me actually doesn't care what happens to him when he leaves office because the damage he's doing is now. It's an open wound. If this had just been a single incident in Trump Tower in the summer of 2016, maybe you can forgive and forget or at least forget or in a normal circumstance, someone would be scared straight into doing it again. That's not the situation we're in. We're in someone who's emboldened. And I I would just ask two things. First of all, on this narrow point, do you believe there's such a thing as double jeopardy in this situation that if he were to be impeached by the house and then acquitted uh in a trial in the senate that it would jeopardize being uh i mean this is what nancy pelosi has floated okay uh, we can talk about nancy miss nancy Nancy. (laughs) yeah um and and her weird reasons that she keeps coming up with but there is no double jeopardy issue um while The impeachment process is quasi-judicial in the sense that it resembles a criminal process in the sense that the House would essentially indict the president and then there would be this trial. It is ultimately a political mechanism. Um, And this is, you know, that's why the only punishment that could ever result is just being him being removed from office. He does not end up in jail. He does not collect $200. He does not, you know, like, I mean, there's nothing else that happens. And so the Fifth Amendment prohibition against double jeopardy is being tried in a criminal trial twice on the same facts. And so, um, and remember, the double jeopardy only applies to the same crime. So the president can be impeached for things that are not necessarily crimes. He can be impeached for violating his oath of office, for abusing his power, for dangling pardons. Those may not be criminal violations. So, you know, even if you were to create some equivalency between these two processes, the, you know, acts of obstruction, potential campaign finance violations are all things that would still be on the table as potential criminal uh, prosecutions. 
um, after the fact. There's no, from my point of view, there's, and I've never seen any legal scholarship suggesting that there would be a double jeopardy Good. issue. I'm, I'm, I'm glad because as a layman, you never know what, what someone is invoking as well, an excuse. They will ex- invoke <clears throat> it. I mean, if we get yeah. to that point, that will become. But she's, she's moving the goalposts, which I assume by your, the way you said, Miss Nancy, you have some thoughts <laughs> about. <laughs> I mean, I love Miss Nancy, but I don't know what she's doing. She's avoiding impeachment at all costs. And she's a smart woman, so I feel like there's some endgame, and again, maybe the political analysts have some idea, but it's the the rationale that she's putting forth make no sense. They don't make sense as a legal matter, like some of the double jeopardy or whatever. They don't really make sense as a, you know, principles or values matter. They don't make sense as simply a matter of fact, which is that there is evidence that the president may have committed crimes and may have may be continuing to violate his duty to uphold the constitution in many different respects these are impeachable so and her thought about saying <laughs> that she wants him to go to she wants him to go to prison she doesn't want to impeach those don't com- they don't compete with each well, other Well, so it was it was lip service she didn't literally mean i want to preserve it in a legal manner for him to go to jail afterwards she was basically providing red meat to the people who are like us um, who are sitting here saying, what What the hell is she thinking? And I always feel when we talk about Pelosi, you have to always remind people that I'm a huge fan of Nancy Pelosi. Disagreeing with her doesn't mean disrespecting her, but she is moving the goalposts. The implication when she says there aren't enough members in my caucus who support it, that implies that there is some number at which she would support it, whether that's a majority or, or not. I don't think that's the case. I think she, honest to God, thinks impeachment is a disaster. She is no different than anyone you ever talked to. Why is she so traumatized? Because because she is the typical person on Twitter who says 1998 backfired on the Republicans. That's that's the argument. There's nothing more than that. Now, she happens to be in a little bit of a different position than people on Twitter where she can single-handedly stop it. And frankly, I wish (laughs) she would just say that. I wish she would just say, "I, I believe this is a terrible idea. It's a waste of time. Then we could be disappointed. We could disagree with her, but it would be a little bit more transparent than I think what's happening. And the notion of Nancy has a secret plan, you know, she knows more than you that's, do. That's what I've been kind of counting she on. She doesn't. Yeah. Her secret plan is what she's been saying. She thinks he's not worth it. She's been saying that there's no point unless it is ironclad. If you listen to her, she's telling you her not-so-secret plan. That she, makes me so sad. That makes I, me sad, too, because I was really counting on Ms. Nancy having a secret plan. I, well, I was convinced. Was, I'm convinced that My Ms. favorite Nancy part of this plan. whole thing is that people who criticize you for not having faith in her, not you, or the communal yeah. you, us, um, they always say, I trust her, I have faith she knows what's best, but they do it assuming that her secret plan is to get them to impeachment. The minute she doesn't get to impeachment... All these people who have blind faith in Nancy Pelosi are going to abandon her so quickly and be so disappointed. So, you know, the the only way that impeachment, if it's successful in terms of also removing, and it's important for listeners to know that impeachment does not mean removal. Impeachment is the first part of the process. It is essentially the accus- the accusatory or, uh, you know, indictment phase, if you will, of the House. Um, and it, it, that is the time when all of the evidence comes to light. The removal part comes only if the Senate uh, holds a trial and convicts. Now, you know, if it were to go through that whole process and if Trump's successor were to pardon him, he may then have, you know, 
he may be shielded from future prosecution. I don't think that that's what she's suggesting. In fact, what I understand is that she says he'll never be convicted and therefore it's, there's no point in even starting the process. And, you know, as a former FBI agent, that makes no sense. That's like when I get evidence that a crime may have been committed, unless at that moment I can be 100% sure that it is going to eventually be charged and the person is going to be convicted, that I should not even bother investigating. I mean, it's just stupid. That's not how how it works. And, you know, there is, I think, going back to this theatrical production of the Mueller report, there is power. Most people have not read this report. It is 448 pages. I think it's riveting, personally, but it's also like a lot of legal porn. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, um, you know, for people who may not like that or can you know, follow it, that it could be a lot of reading for them. Um, the impeachment hearings before even articles of impeachment are, are drafted up would afford the opportunity for all of these fact witnesses to come out. And it would also strengthen the House's grounds for subpoenaing individuals because the House has the explicit impeachment power under the Constitution, not an implied investigatory power, which is what they're currently using to try to subpoena uh, witnesses in front of these different committees. So it would change everything in a fundamental way. And finally, I think the biggest thing is Trump would spontaneously combust. That's the most important part. And that is like the variable that no one is taking into account. The mere fact of starting this up, he would melt down. You don't believe him when he says that that he would love it? You don't think that uh, he's goading Nancy Pelosi into it? I think he is terrified. That is the I correct answer. I think he's terrified. Yeah. I think he would have a Colonel Jessup moment and be like, you're damn right. I ordered the coat. I mean, we're, we're, it's, it will happen. It would happen because the pressure would get so great. And but imagine those tweets. Oh, my God. The well, Colonel Jessup tweet. <laughs> it would be amazing. Well, apparently the, this I didn't see it, but only today he did. Uh, an interview with Maria Bartronomo of Fox, and apparently he was particularly off the rails, uh, no coincidence, the day after Mueller. Yep. My, I haven't seen if she said it, but my feeling is that Nancy Pelosi is going to say, see, we don't need impeachment. We got Bob Mueller there without it, um, which is sort of a comical reverse psychology on us. I, I also wanted to ask you something, uh, not personal, but but personal in terms of, you worked at the FBI under Director Mueller, under Director Comey, too? No, under Mueller only. Okay, under Mueller. Um, I don't know if you ever crossed paths with Andy McCabe or Peter Strzok. I did it. Okay, then we're going to edit out this question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just have one more. So something you you said to Emily really struck me was that your, your kids, um, this is their reality. They don't, this is the error they're growing up in as opposed to... Um, Watergate or 9-11 and that sounds scary as hell how do you how do you see that manifesting with them is it in their language is it in how they interact with other kids at school because I think long term the true damage that Trump is doing is to people like you who have kids who are growing up in this environment that's at the very least not healthy yeah um, you know, I think for them, I don't necessarily see them being cynical. They're also scouts. 
like they're Boy Scouts and girls. You know, so they I think they are getting certain like civic values and, you know, they say the Pledge of Allegiance when they go to their meeting. Like so I think it's tempered by by that. They are also getting some um you know, at, at school, they're I was really surprised. My they're learning about propaganda. They are learning, you know, media literacy. My son in 5th grade had to make a propaganda video, which I really wasn't I don't know how I felt about that. <laughs> I'm but thinking they, like Lenny Riefenstahl. And all but that. like you know, he, what, what, what was it? <laughs> I don't know. He like had on a suit and tie, and you know, uh, like did this whole video where he was trying to convince his audience of what? Song. I don't. I don't remember what the issue was. Um, Fascinating. Yeah, I think. I did, think did he, you it, fall for it, it? It was more persuasion than propaganda. I don't think it was a like. I think it was about why North Korea isn't a a, a threat or something like that. So he was like doing this persuasion thing. But but anyway, but they're learning these words, right? and um, learning about what it means to have, uh, you know, forces that you can't see trying to convince you of things and that you need to think about them and have fact-based arguments and and stuff like that. So I think that there could be uh, good things that come out of it. I don't think we should underestimate, like, how each generation adapts to some of the political challenges. And, you know, they're also seeing protests and, and people uh, galvanizing um, in a political way as well. So I think it just remains to be seen. Yeah. Anything we didn't cover? No, I was going to say the part about Peter I was curious about is I think it, there's a misconception that we that we touched upon that right now they've tried to this myth that everybody works with the FBI, everyone who works with the CIA, we're so biased. And I think when the Lisa Page, Peter Stork thing came out, it was like, oh, okay, that's the deep state. These are all the people, they're all left leaning. And it's so contrary to that. And I think what I was going to ask you to talk about is just what happens when you join the FBI, you join the CIA, you join the DOJ, is you really do check your your bias, you check your party, your partisanship at the door, and it's really more fact based. But yeah, I mean, I don't remember talking politics with my colleagues. I really didn't, and um, I mean, my sense was that most of them were probably conservative, um, but we didn't talk about it and and it was you know there was a lot going on politically this was during w and a lot of the post 9-11 policies and stuff so there was plenty of debate and um you know polarization around those issues not that there was a dearth of anything to talk about but you just didn't do it it wasn't a part of the culture and also you had shit to do that's exactly like you had like you had cases like you were out you, you needed to go to uh do an investigative technique or you know interview somebody or um you know go on surveillance or whatever you're doing like you're not it just you know, we feel like today those political identities define us. And I think that's part of the problem is that I don't remember that being the case for me um, or for anybody else when I was in the it government. Definitely wasn't. It was it. I think it speaks to also the job. It's it's such a fact based job. There isn't there isn't room for us to gray it up with our opinion because it's either if it is what it is. It is what it is. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm ready for a drink. And <laughs> do we wear you out? <laughs> By the way, I love that you said, oh, if I had my uh, Mueller report that's been dog-eared back at the hotel, do you travel with your I Mueller? I do. It's almost like a security blanket now. Like I keep, I, I take it with me because 
Did Sometimes you print it or did you buy one of the books? No, it's a printed spiral bound copy um, that I got that I, I bought got one of the, the books. first day. And I should probably just at this point buy one of the bound books. But um, because stuff comes up and sometimes I have to like refresh my memory or I might get be called to be on TV and it's some part of the report that, you know, I haven't fully memorized. Late so. night reading. Late night reading. Just for shits and giggles. Yeah. I feel kind of exposed when it's not with me. No, oh, I love that. When you sound like she probably fucking carries it everywhere she goes <laughs> well we are so glad that you joined us thank you so much and you can follow us at unredacted dsr on twitter you can follow asha obviously on twitter because i know y'all are following her follow Philippe at Philippe Rhinus and follow me at cia spy girl and thank you all for joining us and thank you again asha so much thanks for having me deep state radio is a production of the deep state radio network a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.